invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. Our text today is verses 1 through 12 in a message entitled, There's Only One Way. A little bit of recap of where we've come from in Acts so far. You remember that the book of Acts takes place as Jesus ascends back into heaven. Uh, the early church is born and the mission of God begins in the New Testament era. And it records the history of the Christian church. We have the background of the early beginnings of the church, how the gospel spread, how opposition came in because of the gospel. And Luke is the author of the work. And when you read it, it reads as a clear progression from where he leaves off in the gospel of Luke to where he picks up in Acts. Acts begins with an emphasis on Peter. That's the first major section of the book. If you look at chapters 1 through 12, it's emphasizing the ministry and mission activity of Peter in Jerusalem and then in Samaria in what's been referred to as the Jewish evangelization. The second part of the book uh, focuses on the ministry and the mission of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And you can look at verses uh, or chapters 13 through 28, I should say, with an emphasis on Gentile uh, evangelization. Now, I believe the big idea of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers, that's us, followers of Jesus, to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus down the street and around the world, and to advance the kingdom of God. This is to be the pattern of our lives. And Acts chapter 4 expands on what took place in Acts chapter 3. You remember that Peter and John had gone up to the temple together at the hour of prayer, and they passed through this gate that's called the gate called beautiful or the beautiful gate uh, position on the eastern side of the temple complex uh, and facing the mount of olives in the garden of gethsemane they pass through that gate and they encounter a man there who had been lame from his mother's womb now he had to be carried daily to beg for alms uh, it was a begging station of sorts now the jews had a very strong practice of giving alms uh, they would help people who had needs they knew that it was at the temple that they would find the religious people and they would be able to get some help. And that's where that man was, having been positioned uh, by the people who would have helped him get there. So they call for the man's attention. He's expecting that he's going to receive something materially. And Peter looks straight at him and he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And there was a miracle. Immediately in that moment, the man rose up. His legs were strong. He goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Now remember, the people would have known this man because he had been that way his entire life. They had undoubtedly passed by him time and time again. And now he's in the temple. Now he's healed. Now he's whole. And the miracle's in front of them. And the crowd was in awe and was filled with amazement. Now, Peter, as any good preacher would do, took the opportunity to bring a sermon. And he attributed the power for healing to Jesus, who is God's servant. Now, we've already covered two parts of this sermon, chapter 3 and verse 1 through 16. We learned there that we're broken apart from Jesus. We all need somebody to tell us about Jesus, and we need to exercise faith in Jesus. The second part of the message is verse 17 through verse 26, where the promise of the Messiah was prophesied it was foretold that it was coming it was realized in the incarnation 
and it is to be received by faith. Church, I want you to know that God is true to his promises. And I'll say it another way. Your trust is never misplaced when your trust is in God. So we begin reading now in Acts chapter 4. And I'll begin reading in verse 1 and go through verse 12. Here's what the Word of God says. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about five thousand verse 5 the next day their rulers elders and scribes assembled in jerusalem with annas the high priest caiaphas john alexander and all the members of the high priestly family after they had peter and john stand before them they began to question them by what power or in what name have you done this then peter was filled with the holy spirit and he said to them Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. And this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter and John continue to speak to the people, and they're confronted by the religious authorities who did not like what they were teaching. Now I want you to make a connection here. Proclamation brings persecution. If we look around the world today and we see the places where the persecution is the highest, it's most intense, and people are proclaiming the gospel, persecution is going to follow that. Now, we don't know that as well in our context. In fact, we get our feelings hurt and get marginalized a little bit, and we tend to clam up because we have a fear of man and we're concerned what people are going to think about us. That was not the case with Peter. This should also not come as a surprise. Is it not true that Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first? So when Jesus looks at us, he says, hey, don't be surprised that trouble's going to come. Because when you proclaim the truth about me, what's going to happen is there's going to be a clash between light and darkness. There's going to be a clash between good and evil. And there's going to be persecution that will follow. And the idea here is that the apostles were stopped or seized suddenly because of their actions, abruptly because of that. A quote from the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote from his Flossenburg cell in 1937 on suffering. He said, suffering's the badge of the true Christian. The disciple's not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the one true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for one of the main confessions of faith defined the church, listen to this, as a community of those who, and I quote, are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. This was in an early confession of the Christian church. And they said, listen, this is what you should expect. This is what you should know. But it's not all bad. Somebody said one time that if uh, a trial causes you to be flat on your back, the good of it is that you're facing heaven. 
And that's so true because when we're on the mountaintop and things are going as we want them to go and we're kind of running along smoothly, whether it's 30 minutes or 30 days or three years, we tend not to be as intently focused on God. Oh, but when the trouble comes, when the heartache comes, when the challenge to our faith comes, that's when we recognize what we're in and what we're engaged in in spiritual warfare. Among the people who seized them and stopped them were the priests. Remember, the priests served as representatives between God and the people under the law. There's also the captain of the temple police. That would have been the person who was responsible for the temple complex and making sure that everybody was basically in order and there was no trouble as people came in masses to be able to worship and offer sacrifices and bring offerings and pray and the other things that they, that they would do. And then the Sanhedrin is listed as well, who was an assembly of the religious uh, leaders, uh, the Sadducees specifically are referenced, who are part of the Sanhedrin. And it was basically the Supreme Court for Israel in those days. And they would render judgments. Their power and their uh, position was limited by Rome, but at the same time, they were still very influential. The Sadducees were a little bit different. And the reason that they were a little bit different is that they tended to be more elitist they tended to be more aristocratic in their backgrounds. Uh, they controlled the temple uh, as far as the governing of it, whereas the Pharisees had more of an influence over the synagogues. But the key here is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Now, let's think about the posture that these religious leaders approached with. They had had enough. They were annoyed. They were greatly disturbed. So this was not a friendly encounter. It was not to say to the apostles, hey, boys, if y'all would just come on in and let's have a discussion about this and let's see what our points of disagreement are and then maybe we can go from there oh no it was an arrest full force and apparently it was too late to hold a legal hearing in the day so they're arrested on suspicion of teaching something false and the next day there's a meeting at that meeting is annas who was the high priest Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. We do not know how many people that was, but these were people of influence. And they had Peter and John stand before them in what I envision as kind of a tribunal. And the questioning began. And here was the main question. By what power or in what name have you done this? And in the moments that we have together, I want to show you three truths from this passage about Jesus that Peter proclaimed. Truth number one is this. Jesus is the only way to God. Now, it had been difficult to miss all of the commotion. People were stirred because this man had been healed. They had gathered as Peter's message thundered forth. And the religious authorities added to the chaos by bringing Peter and John in. And they were people who had some measure of authority, even though, as I said, it was somewhat limited by the government of Rome. But they knew what authority was, and they wanted to know who were the apostles representing. Whose power was it that they were representing? Now, I find it interesting that they used the word power to inquire who had brought about that healing and how it had been brought about because they could have used the word here authority now i think name does represent authority but the first thing that they mention is power power represents the ability to make a decision to bring something to pass to get your way whatever the case might be and that's what they mentioned here 
And in legal cases, it was interesting because the litigants would either provide the name of an authority that they were acting on behalf of, or they would say, no, uh, I acted solely alone. So now if you like crime shows, you've seen this before, right? When they've got somebody, let's use a drug dealer for an example, and that drug dealer is kind of a lower level dealer. Maybe he's not right on the street dealer, but he's somewhere maybe two or three notches up. The police get him in, and what do the police want to do? They want to find out who he's working for. Because the further up the line that you can go, if you can get to the heart of what's going on, then you can solve the problem of whatever you're trying to solve. Well, there are people who are snitches on those crime programs, and they sing the news like, uh, like nobody's business. And there are other people who say, nope, I acted alone. It was, only, it was only me. I take sole responsibility. I'll take whatever the punishment is. Here, they're trying to get to the bottom of what they were doing and whose power they were doing it in. And it says specifically in verse 2 that they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, this teaching was in opposition to the religious authorities in general, but especially to the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not hold to the resurrection. Now, I personally believe that Christianity rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, I do believe that if you were to ask me what doctrine unifies everything else and out of that doctrine everything else flows, I would tell you the doctrine of the Trinity. That'd be my answer. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in person, co-equal, co-eternal, the classic definition of who God is informs us about what God does and how we are to relate to him. But at the heart of this is this power, this resurrection power. Because if there had only been a death on the cross, that would have been a sacrifice without the power authenticating that he, in fact, had been victorious over death, hell, and the grave. But Jesus was the substitute for us. He died in your place and in my place. The sinless Son of God was willing to go to the cross and to suffer on our behalf and to be, borrowed in a, be buried in a borrowed tomb and to be raised on the third day. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we look to him because we believe that he is the living Christ. He's the living Lord. And I think it's impossible to explain the gospel apart from the resurrection. Listen to what Paul writes in the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read just three verses here, verse 14 and 15, and then verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation. Guess what? I got nothing to say if Christ is not raised from the dead. And so is your faith. You've got nothing to believe in. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God. Because we're telling you that Jesus was raised from the dead after he was crucified, and that's not true then it's a lie. And it's important that we get this right. And he says, because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. Now listen to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Uh, I love this quote from uh, Dr. Habermas, Gary Habermas, who I think is the foremost scholar on the resurrection in the world in Christianity. And he said, I'm totally convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is the most crucial bridge between reality and life. Knowing the truth of this event is the engine that drives the quest for spiritual victory. So they say very plainly in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. You know what it means to be saved? It means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. 
It, it means to be rescued from your sins and secured by the Savior. And that's what Jesus does. He, he came on a rescue mission. He said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I'm thankful that Jesus came to save that which was lost and to seek us out because that was me. That was you. And yet God took the initiative. God's the primary mover. God's not going to let us go. And he's going to draw us to himself. And that's exactly what it means to be saved. And the name of Jesus embodies who he is. Now, I believe what's in view here is the doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus in salvation. That's really important. There are a lot of doctrines that we understand, we believe, we can argue, we can defend in Scripture. And we use words, English words, so that we can understand it. So even though the word exclusive is not mentioned here, that's the idea. Ex on exclusive or exclusivity means out of or outside. So to exclude basically means to, that there is one way and one way only and that all other ways are wrong. Remember that Judaism and Christianity go hand in hand. In the Old Testament, the prophecies, the sacrificial system, the law, the tabernacle, the temple... It all points to the holiness and to the character of God. Christianity is the fulfillment of this, the fulfillment of the law. So the old covenant was made obsolete, but the old covenant was made obsolete because there was a new covenant. And the reason the new covenant was sufficient is because it was the Lamb of God who gave himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And I think some people think wrongly that Christianity is the only faith that claims exclusivity. But I want to push back on that just for a moment. Because I think also at, at certain junctures, other religions of the world claim the same. Because at the points at which they contradict the Bible and the Christian faith, they are taking exclusive positions. They're saying, this is what we believe, we think it's right, and if in that it contradicts Christianity, then it's parted ways and is presenting an exclusive way of thinking. This is important for us to process because we have to come back continually to the heart of the gospel when we're communicating. And of course, there are atheists and secular humanists who deny the value of anything supernatural. But beyond this, modern society seems to have collectively arrived at the position that it is arrogant bigoted and narrow-minded to claim that Jesus is the only way. And if you share Jesus, you will hear statements like, well, that's your truth. This is my truth. Now, that's all sorts of trouble, uh, mainly because it violates the law of non-contradiction, which says things can't be contradictory to each other and at the same time both be true. But yeah, that's what many people do. There is not my truth and your truth. There is a truth. How we respond to that truth does not change the truth. It simply is our response to it. Let me illustrate a way we might think about this. I needed a ride here recently, and I got out my phone, pulled up my Uber app. I've got my Uber app connected to my Apple Pay and a couple other things. I put in what I needed, and if you've not taken uber rides before you'll know that they have about five minutes to either take the ride or, or reject it 
So you have just a moment to see, is there going to be somebody in the area? Is it going to be like a really long time before they get here to get me if you didn't pre-schedule it? And everything goes along with that. So I put the request in. And when you put the request in, a little icon shows up of a vehicle that's supposed to be a presentation of what they're driving. And you can see their little app in the icon and uh, their icon in the app. And then you can also see uh, a little uh, blinking blue dot that's you. That's your location. It'll tell you how long it's going to take for the driver to get to you. And then once the driver gets to you, how long it's going to take, presumably, through traffic to get to where you're going. So I call for this ride. The driver takes the ride. It's going to be about a 15-minute uh, trip. They're supposed to be there in about 10 minutes. Not bad. After about five minutes, I noticed something I'd never noticed. On my app, I was here. My little blue dot was blinking like it was supposed to so I could tell where I was. And the driver got to a certain point where they were supposed to turn off and come pick me up and just kept on going. I'm talking miles. Now, you can get somewhere fast if you don't know where you're going. And this driver did not know where they were going. They're getting farther and farther away. And pretty soon they're like 10 miles away because they're going like 75 miles an hour down the interstate. So I got back on the app and I said, listen, I'm not trying to tell you what to do or how to do it, but do you know where you're going? And I get this message back. Oh, I'm so sorry. I missed my turn. And it was because a family member called me and something happened. It kicked my app off. And I didn't realize it at the moment that I was supposed to turn, that I was supposed to turn there. And I kept on driving and profusely apologizing. And I said, listen, not in a big hurry. You've already burned more gas money than you're going to make on this ride. <laughs> so just come on and pick me up. And the driver came and picked me up and got me uh, to where I was going. It's important to know where you're going and why you're going there and it's important to know the way see that driver did not know the way even with technological aid did not know the way this brought to mind the exchange that uh, jesus had with thomas you remember when thomas asked jesus a reasonable question after jesus talks about heaven and and what he's going to prepare for us in john chapter 14 the first three verses and Thomas says to Jesus, listen, if we don't know where you're going, then how can you say that we know the way there? It's a good question. And Jesus took that moment to say in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let me just bring this down to where we can all embrace it. The way to salvation is a person, and his name is Jesus. That's the message. That's what he was saying to them. Thomas says, how can we know the way? And Jesus is like, open your eyes, I am the way. How can we know the truth? Open your ears, I am the truth. How can we know life? Look at me, I have come and brought life abundant. That's what Jesus has done on our behalf. So when uh, the scripture says here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that there's salvation in no one else. Peter is emphasizing that Jesus is the focus of repentance. Jesus is the source of forgiveness. And Jesus is our hope of salvation. Because he is the only way to God. And then truth number two. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, Peter said to them that if they were being examined about a good deed that had been done to a disabled man, and by what means he was healed, he said, let me tell you, he was healed 
by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. It was by him that this lame man was made whole. But he says something very important in verse 11. And it's a quote from a psalm, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But he says, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There were prophecies spoken of the Messiah as the cornerstone in the Old Testament. And the particular reference here in verse 11 is to Psalm 118 and verse 22. What does the psalm do? It celebrates the provision of the Lord. Is not Jesus Christ the greatest provision that God has ever made? And he says in Psalm 118, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. So Psalm 118 is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, we don't use this cornerstone language a lot today. Unless you're a builder, you'll have the concept and it'll make sense to you. But a cornerstone is useful in the building of a building. It was especially so in the ancient times because it was the principal stone. It was the stone that was placed at the corner of a building to be able to guide the workers in the building in building whatever the structure was. If that cornerstone was put in the wrong place or turned in the wrong direction, the entire building would be off. Nothing would turn out right. And if the cornerstone was not followed, then the path of construction was going to end up in chaos. We've seen a couple of stories of this in the last couple of years. About two years ago, I think it was, there were 98 people who died in the collapse of a Florida uh, uh, condominium uh, tower. It's called the Champlain uh, Towers South in Surfside. So anyway, it's this 40-year-old building. It's a 12-story building. And when that thing collapsed, it was partial at first, but it looked like somebody had imploded it. It looked like they had taken C4 plastics and gotten up in there and positioned them so that they could implode this building. And because so many people died, the investigation and the court cases and all that are going to follow, I'm sure, uh, were very important. So they sent structural engineers in. These structural engineers came in from the National Institute of Standard and Technology, and they conducted what they said was one of the most complex investigations that's ever uh, been undertaken. And what they found was no surprise. There were significant design and construction problems that had left the deck weaker than what it should have been, even weaker than what was required by the old building codes. And the concrete columns used to support the building were compromised and the building came down. Recently, we had a similar but much less tragic example over in Barbersville. The whole back of the Target store on one corner collapsed and was unusable and now they're repairing it and doing work on it or whatever because the foundation itself would not hold on the hillside where they're built. So I want to say this very clearly and straightforward. What foundation you build on matters. Because if you build on the foundation of shifting sands and you build on things that are not going to stand the test of time, you're going to end up disappointed. And not only that, you might just miss out on the gospel. So we want to be sure that we're building our lives on this cornerstone of Jesus. And I love what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, beginning in verse 19, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Now here's the phrase. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. He's the living stone, and he's the living stone because he's been raised from the dead. And it is Christ who is the cornerstone who joins the entire building of God's church together. 
the people, the souls, the lives. It is Jesus who pulls us together as our cornerstone. And it's the holy temple of God that we reside in because of our relationship with God. Now, some rejected the cornerstone. And I've got bad news for you today. Some people are going to reject the cornerstone. Even when they know it's about forgiveness, they know it's about life, they know it's about heaven, they know it's about a way of living, an ethic for living now as we follow Jesus and are conformed to his image. But some people are going to reject it. And Jesus is also described, the gospel is described as a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And Jesus as the cornerstone is preeminent over everything else. He is first. And the cornerstone had to be laid first as the foundation of the church. Jesus is also the cornerstone as the foundation of our lives. The structure of the church in our lives would not stand if it were not on a solid foundation, and that solid foundation is Jesus. And Jesus as the cornerstone is the true, solid, and reliable anchor and foundation for our lives because he sets the direction and he sets the standard of construction. Now, I want to make an obvious uh, parallel here that we all will resonate with, and that is... In the church, we can lose focus and be way off course before we even knew it happened. I assure you that any church that in their past believed the word of God, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, carried out the mission of God, started churches and influenced communities, if they turn for the worse, somewhere in there is because Either the leadership or the people or both lost their focus and it became about something else other than Jesus. That's why when we routinely talk about keeping the main thing the main thing and we're continually coming back to the word of God, we're continually coming back to the gospel, we continually say Jesus is the one to be exalted. It's because of our nature to turn away to things that are flashy and shiny and interesting that may not be even be terrible things but they're not the main things jesus is the foundation of our lives now i want to show you a third and final truth truth number three is that jesus is to be boldly shared with the world now let's track again with these verses in verse one they were speaking to the people verse two they were teaching the people verse eight peter was filled with the holy spirit and then we're going to get to verse 13 uh, as we go arrive at the next passage of scripture it specifically refers to their boldness so much that they knew that they had been with jesus now this is a pretty important concept because in acts the idea of boldness or speaking boldly is used at least nine times in the book and watch this the book begins and ends with a proclamation of the gospel you think jesus is not at the center of this whole thing of the entire message begins and ends with an emphasis on him it's peter at pentecost speaking with confidence and boldness it's paul at the end of acts proclaiming the kingdom of god and teaching with all boldness and without hindrance and this boldness thing was something that people would have understood as well because in those days in the greco-roman context a citizen was actually encouraged to speak freely they were encouraged to speak boldly and it's the same way that the apostles spoke the gospel so when the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers at Pentecost, what did he give? He gave boldness. He gave them the power to do what they were doing. 
And the followers of Jesus prayed and encouraged one another, and God granted them that. I do want to sound forth a word of caution here because there's a difference from my perspective between a worldly boldness and a spiritual boldness. A worldly boldness, if it is not tempered, can come across as confrontational. It can come across as offensive. And spiritual boldness, on the other hand, is a combination of humility, engaging people with clarity, and directly addressing the issue at hand. Now, God uses some interesting ways to give us boldness, and he puts us in some situations where we have to depend on him more than ever. There's a man by the name of Prem Prodden, P-R-E-M Prodden, who lived in the 20th century. His plane was shot down during World War II, and he was wounded while he was parachuting to safety. As a result, he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. He once noted, as he went on to be a missionary, he said, I have a lame leg. Isn't it strange of God that he called me to preach the gospel, listen to this, in the Himalayan mountains and preach in Nepal he did, but not without opposition that included dungeons of death, is what they called them, where prisoners faced extreme conditions. Oh, but the story gets far worse for this brother. In a span of 15 years of mission ministry, he spent 10 years in prison in 14 different locations. Let me just repeat that for emphasis. He's shot down. He's wounded as he's coming down. He's lame in his legs, or severely injured at least, and, and hindered the rest of his life. It's a better way to say it. He's sent to the, one of the hardest places in the world, honestly, physically, spiritually, every other way. He serves faithfully, but what does God have in store for him? 15 years of service. God says, you're going to be in prison for 10 of that, and you're going to be in 14 different locations. And yet he's rejoicing that God called him. And as a result of that, there was great fruit. His, there were many lives that were changed. It included guards and prisoners who uh, he took the message of Jesus to, and then they took it to their own people. Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. Now let me tell you where this boldness comes from. Boldness comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what boldness comes from. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed for the day of redemption, when we repent and believe. And then the Bible says that we are to keep on being filled with the Spirit. So it's a continual action where each day we are surrendering our hearts and our lives to Him. So we need that power of the Holy Spirit because we cannot change a heart. We cannot transform a life. We cannot cause somebody to go in a different direction. All we can do is faithfully proclaim it, and then God will give us the power that we need when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So every morning we ought to pray, God, would you fill us by your Spirit? Would you guide us by your Word? Would you put opportunities in front of us today in order to be bold for you? And that boldness comes because we believe the promises of God. We believe what God is telling us. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that there's a heaven that we're going to go to someday when we die and we leave this earth. We believe that there's a hell that other people are going to go to. And that boldness is driven because we have a love for God and we have a love for people. And that's what ought to stir us to be more bold for the Lord. And we need a commitment to prayer and we need a commitment to the Word of God. And that connects with the Spirit of God empowering us 
But I want to tell you, church, that boldness requires being willing to speak out regardless of risk or consequence. It will not be easy. And in the midst of the marginalization that we're experiencing in the West, and I think the potential for persecution on the horizon, we need a holy boldness. So here's my question for you as I come toward a close. How bold are you in your faith? Do people know you're a follower of Jesus? Have they ever heard the good news come out of your mouth to their ears to land on their hearts? How bold are you? You might think of boldness only being something important for a man who would go on bad legs to the Himalayans, Himalaya mountains. But it's not just for him. It's for you when you go to work tomorrow in your vocation. It's for you when you drive into your neighborhood and you pull into your house and you see those neighbors around you that have no interest in Christ or the things of God. It's for you when you're with your grandkids who haven't yet come to faith in Jesus and you need to boldly share with them what it means to follow him. It's for you, student, young person, as you go to school tomorrow and you encounter people all around you. You're around more lost people with greater access at this moment in your life than you'll probably ever be in the rest of your life just by virtue of being in that setting. How bold are you? Do they know you're a follower of Jesus? Have they heard the words of the good news? We need that boldness, and it needs to be shared with the world. That's one of the things we emphasize even as we're talking about North American missions and church planting and so on. We plant churches because we want to reach people with the good news of Jesus. That's why. It's the gospel that's at the heart of it in obedience to the word. And I say to you in closing, there's only one way. There's just one way. And his name is Jesus. Whatever way you thought you were going. And maybe you're considering these other things you might even be one of those people i was talking about that's gotten caught up in secular humanism or some form of atheism or this overriding doubt and you're not sure and you don't know what to think well i'm telling you jesus is the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by him so if you